the second episode of Go Wonk Yourself. Go Wonk Yourself. I'm Lucas Anderton. And I am Eddie Michelson. On our second episode today, we will have one of the founders of an indivisible chapter in Virginia. Uh, she also ran for the House of Delegates in Virginia. Um, her name is Miss Kimberly Tucker. I'm no, really no, excited for that. Now, for the people watching, uh, including me, can you tell me what that is? Indivisible? Yes. So, Indivisible, yeah, we'll talk about this a lot after the interview, too. But Indivisible basically is a group that was started in the Trump era by two former Obama staffers, if I'm uh, correct. And basically what they're trying to do is just put up any sort of resistance they can against uh, the Trump administration. And their tactics are actually based off of the tactics the Tea Party used. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's interesting. the Tea Party Revolution. So, um, hmm. so yeah. That, is, that certainly is interesting, that you would take our tactics while also trashing the party. I think it's just the, you know, fight fire with fire. They did it to us, now we do it to them. Fire and fury? Fire and fury. That's what we need to talk about. Are you ordering the book? Um, the same way I wouldn't pick up a National Enquirer on my way out of the uh, grocery store, I will not be purchasing this, this book. Um... I think that's a really good point. This guy is known for being a conspiracy theorist. And, like, I'm really disappointed that liberals are giving him the time of day. Like, yeah, he's trashing Trump, but lots of people are. Support one that's not a conspiracy theorist. My mom ordered the book, and I, I <laughs> she was like, do you want a copy? And I was like, I don't want to support that dude. Yeah. I, I think uh, him going around on TV and talking about his... Uh, experiences with the trump administration and uh from a first-hand look um uh, i think people are really attracted to the like tabloidy sort of uh like format of that and i think that's really attractive uh in our politics today um especially like given how this past uh election went and i mean i i remember when yeah how this past election went Trump won. We know Eddie. Um, and, like, I remember one of my first times ever really seeing politics in this, and it was when I was young, was when um, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and they were saying she had brain cancer. And it was over all these magazines in the grocery store, like, checkout line, and I, I believed it. I didn't know about this whole tabloid style of journalism, and, like, it's toxic. And I think uh, if you're a major news outlet, such as MSNBC or CNN, or uh, Fox, Fox News. Um, I With think Tom you. Carlson. I think. <laughs> I think who you choose to associate with and who you uh, decide to give a platform to. I believe in everyone getting a platform, but except Kelly and Conway. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but if you're if you're deciding to give someone like the time of day with your news, I think it says a lot about your own credibility with who you uh, choose to give validation to. Yeah, that's really true. And speaking of giving validation to, so how about that valid 2020 campaign for Oprah Winfrey? Well, right now I'm more concerned about Chelsea Manning, <laughs> but... Um, Can you explain who Chelsea Manning is for people who don't Chelsea know? Chelsea Manning is a traitor to this country. All right, um, the unbiased biography. <laughs> I guess, I mean, she was convicted of it, so... Um, that's correct. Uh, there's no disputing that. Um, I guess so. she basically leaked a lot of intel to, was it WikiLeaks that she leaked? Uh, it was WikiLeaks, yeah. yeah. Uh, and 
uh, she also happens to be uh, transgender, uh, and she was in the uh, she was in the army. Or... Yeah, I think she was an army officer. Yeah. Um, and now she is launching a very. Uh, it seems to be solely driven by anger uh, campaign that is rooted in res- like the resistance movement. Is she running as a Democrat? Yeah. She is? I and that, so. Okay, well, that's the part I was really curious about, because when I watched that video, it it sounded like one of the NRA's commercials. Like, very, like, if you don't do this, your life is at risk. Like, if you don't, like, our, like, I don't know, like, our livelihood is being threatened. And that doesn't seem like something the Democrats... Generally, we talk bad about Republicans for doing that sort of fear-mongering. Um, but this is fear-mongering, too. And I'm not saying the Democrats are, like, not guilty of it, too. It's just we have a more, like, subtle kind of fear-mongering. And, like, this was blatant fear-mongering. I mean, if you haven't watched Chelsea Manning's, like, introduction video for her Senate campaign, uh, go on her Facebook and watch it. I mean... It even seems partly inspired by, like, these Antifa protests. It did and it feel seems, very Antifa It seemed to have that sort of theme to it, like, almost a violent sort of resistance. Um, which... I don't think that sort of messaging is healthy, but obviously she should be allowed to do that. Um, so uh, on to now the more exciting, I suppose, uh, potential candidate. Exciting for, for the Republicans. President. <laughs> we have Oprah Winfrey, um, queen goddess herself. She is. And I assume the Democrats uh, will embrace her as so. What do we make of this? I mean, is this not a complete... Uh, mirror of the sort of Trump celebrity figure running for president and are the Democrats who said that Trump should not be elected due to his lack of experience are they hypocrites for now turning around and saying we embrace Oprah and she will be our next president if those people exist then yes but I think the people jumping behind Oprah more than anything are not the people who were claiming that Trump shouldn't be elected purely because he has no governing experience um but, like, I'm a Democrat, and even I'm saying I don't think I want Oprah to run. I want Oprah to run for Senate or something. I'd all, I've always wanted her to get into politics. Ever since she campaigned for Obama in 2008 and 2012, um, I have, like, wanted her to be a political figure. But I think she should not act like Hillary Clinton and act like that position is entitled to her. She needs to work her way up through the ranks. She needs to Would sit... she be able to do that, though? Like... I don't know. In the context of uh, campaigning itself, that's where I th- I really think that would be her weak spot. Like campaigning an effective campaign in which there are adversaries. Obviously, she can speak very well yeah. and appeal to very large groups. But that's what true. happens when the nitty gritty politics that people start caring about as the campaign progresses, when they want to know what someone's plans are and they want them to be able to hold those up to like any sort of scrutiny especially this is i'm thinking in terms of like debates how will she be in a debate she can obviously speak but can she can she handle that kind of environment especially against someone like trump who is very comfortable with uh obviously going through any lengths to uh win a a debate yeah and i think that's an interesting point and that's why i wanted i cannot imagine oprah sitting in uh the senate but like, that's why I want her to be there, is because I want Oprah to have to sit through a Senate intelligence meeting. I want Oprah to have to sit in the Foreign Affairs Committee. I want her to have to develop these policy ideas before they're tested to the entire nation. Like, I need that 
her ideology to turn into policy. Because she, I mean, I'm sure if you ask her, she has a strong ideology, but, like, it, she has to be able to translate that to policy. Right, and once that ideology comes out, are people still going to accept that along exactly. with the figure? Exactly, and I think Hillary Clinton was the exact opposite. Hillary Clinton had the policy, she didn't have an ideology. Like, it was purely policy and people just weren't picking up on it. Um, whereas Trump is the ideology god. Like, he is the branding god. And, like, as grossed out as I am by his branding, he obviously does a really good job. And yet he seems to have no ideology also. That's true. I guess we have to distinguish branding, ideology, and policy. Because, um, I mean, I guess Hillary sort of had the branding. She had the weird H that went to the right that burns. And then a million other things. Yeah, that... Stronger Together, which Stronger she took together, from Ralph Northam. I'm with her. I'm with her. Hillary for prison. Hillary for prison. Oh, sorry, that was mine. What was the one uh, Hillary lied four soldiers died something like that it's a bumper what? sticker uh <laughs> hillary lied soldiers died. i can't remember but there's a very <laughs> popular bumper sticker that has something to do with that um i don't know but yeah i mean look i want to get through 2018 i don't want to talk about i don't want to talk about any presidential candidates until 2018 um, I think that, that that's perfectly fair. It's all speculation at this point. And whenever there's polls, they're kind of jokes anyway. Yeah. So. Like, like let Oprah's speech be what it was, uh, an award acceptance speech. Yeah. It, I mean, it may have sounded political. That doesn't mean it was a political speech. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. So, um, and then, so another thing that just came up in the news is with, uh, this being award season, um, Trump announced, ladies and gentlemen, the fake news awards, the fake news awards. Um, and basically what this was is like Trump playing on his whole fake news saying, he's saying, oh, I'm going to give out awards to the very best fake news. Um, and like we, he listed some of them. I don't even remember what they were, but, um, and yeah, then I wasn't even really following this. I just knew yeah. about the existence of the fake news awards. Um, yeah, I think this is, uh, Trump being Trump, obviously, I think he knows how to put on um, a show, both figuratively and literally, uh, and he likes playing to his base, and this is the perfect way to play to his base because his entire campaign was based around, um, in part, that the media is very biased, which is obviously true, but this is what his, this is what his base likes to hear, and I think that uh, that's, that's really what he's appealing to. Yeah, no, I think so too. And again, that comes back to he is a branding genius. Like, he knows how to appeal to that base. Um, I had a really good conversation over break with a, um, she's a lifetime political consultant. And what she said to me is that no politician should have to play it to their base as much as he does. Because if you have to play it to your base that much, then you're doing something wrong. You should have already, for them to be Especially your base. Especially when it's just the base that's, uh, that's going with you on particular things. Because the idea of a base is that they're so enthralled by this candidate that they're not really going to budge. Uh, some of these people are budging. And, like, his whole presidency, whereas, like, Obama and Bush, they, they were trying to pick up a bigger audience. At every point in their presidency, they weren't worrying about what the strong Democrats or strong Republicans were thinking. They were thinking, how can I pick up more people? Um, how can I make more of America happy with my presidency? Trump doesn't care about that. He knows he's never going to have broad support, so he simply is just trying to entertain or appease these people. 
Um, and that that scares me a little, but um, I, I don't know. Well, the question now is, will it work? When the next election comes around, will his base re-rally and recreate this incredible thing we saw um, in last election? Uh, is, the, is the Make America Great Again movement uh, that he created... Is that going to carry over to 2020, even after uh, we see how how much or how little he does that actually aligns with what they want? Uh, I would actually argue that some of them don't really even care about the policies that's, uh, themselves. They care more about just seeing Trump winning and seeing uh, the, the quote-unquote left or the media. They Them losing is good enough for them. Uh, but I'm talking about the... Um, the base that like that base that didn't show up before the base that ended up making him win um it's these folks in rural america who didn't care about politics before but then when trump came around their house next to interstate whatever had a giant trump sign up in the trees so that everyone on the interstate could see i mean those are the people um that they've never been into politics before so can he counted on them to show up once can he count on them to show up twice they didn't show up for Ed Gillespie. They showed up for Roy Moore, but not enough of them. Um, so will they show up again in 2018, and will they show up for Trump? I think I think this is a really, like, it's a harder question to answer than, like, you might think at face value. You might say, like, well, no, obviously they can't. But I think these other candidates that we've seen losing, I, the, Trump may just be a one and only figure who these people are going to rally true around it's not like i am now linked to the republican party because obviously trump is perfectly fine with um breaking away from the republican party so they're not rallying behind the party they're just rallying behind this figure so i think it's really hard to base what will happen in 2020 off of what's happened with these more local uh and uh senate elections uh because we really don't know how these people are when it comes to voting for trump himself and like Republicans, for example, have always done really well in off-year elections. They've always been, like, a special election was always in Republican favor. But, like, with a Republican Party made out of these people, I think that's going to change a lot of political philosophy. Like, 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 for example, Virginia governorship has always just been in favor of Republicans simply because it's the year after a presidential election. People don't care enough to show up. But, like, these are just people that only care about Trump. They don't care about republicanism or conservatism. They care about Trump. Um, and they're the ones who take him past that 51 or take him to 51. Um, so, I don't know. I think it'll be really interesting. And it's I don't think it's anything that anyone can predict or not. Yeah, it's um, really it's pretty far off. So, it's hard to say what will happen between now and then. He could have a, a million victories from now until the next election and then suddenly he's a policy guru but uh we just or he could he won't be impeached but uh do you really not think so well i think if democrats take the house and get subpoena power uh there would be a move to impeach him almost immediately but i don't know if that how far that would get yeah yeah and um and then once it gets to that point it's much harder to actually get uh president out of office historically we, we've seen presidents be impeached and then the senate does absolutely nothing um and so i think impeachment's likely i think the senate convicting him is yeah. is unlikely um there are just too many middle of the line senators who 
who aren't as fired up as... I mean, the House of uh, Representative, Representatives has historically been the more partisan, fiery branch. Um, and I think that that's a perfect system put in place, that the ones who actually get to convict a president are the far less partisan uh, branch of the legislative branch. So, um, But anyway, so speaking of Trump, in the past few days, um, a scandal has come out that uh, he had an affair with um, an adult film star. Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels. Look her up on IMDb. One of you, these you're days. like you're like literally acting like you don't know who she is right now. <laughs> like I haven't frequented her. Like her like you're work. not the liberal in this podcast. <laughs> um. So th- what happened is a few years ago he was apparently having an affair with Stormy Daniels and nothing ever came of it. And then a few weeks before the election he paid her something like a hundred twenty five hundred thirty five thousand dollars to be quiet. Um, and then a tabloid or someone picked up on it the other day, and now she said she is going to violate the NDA and, uh, and the settlement and give some sort of interview, I guess. Um, I think this was while he was with his latest wife, our lovely first lady. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I fell asleep while you were talking about that. And I think that, uh, most people will when they hear this story. I think... In, in the giant pot of Trump news, this is just a grain of salt just sprinkled somewhere in there. And people, the people who care are going to, are going to care for like a day or two. And the people who don't care are just not going to read it at all. His, his, uh, his supporters are going to look at this and be like, well, this is just nonsense. Pulled out of the media once again to try to uh, bring down Trump. And then I think the people who are reasonable will say like, eh, maybe, but like also who cares really? That's true. And I think that's how it is with everything, honestly. Like, there's something bad on Rachel Maddow one night, and the next day that same group of people is pissed off. But, like, no one else cares. Yeah. And, like, maybe eventually Rachel Maddow's going to give one of those investigative little segments that she does, and it's going to piss off a lot more people than usual. But, like, right now it's the same group speaking out against it. And, like, that's where the issue comes into play. And, like... I think that rolls over really well into our interview with Kim Tucker is that, uh, like what does resistance mean? And like, what is the point of it? Um, you know, are the same group of people coming out to March after like the tax bill, the healthcare bill, is their resistance ever going to mean anything? So, um, with that in mind, uh, we're going to go over to our lovely interview with Miss Kimberly and Tucker. Um, and we will see you right after that. Goodbye. All right. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lucas. Thanks for having me. So uh, just to give you some history on Kim and I, uh, we met in a coffee shop back when she was trying to get uh, the Democratic candidate for Congress in Virginia's 2nd Congressional District on the ballot. Um, and then... We met again about a year ago at Scott Taylor's town hall, our congressman's one and only major town hall that he's had. Um, and since then, we've been working together. I wonder why that was his one and only. <laughs> no idea. So first, um, in the pre-Trump presidency, you were already starting to get involved in politics with that 2016 congressional campaign. Um, after working as an educator and uh, a school administrator for most of your life, what made you take up an interest in politics? Well, I've always been a 
consumer of politics. Growing up in a household, my father was a news junkie, uh, and you know, so I've always been a consumer. But in terms of getting involved, uh, I was I was actually inspired by um, President Trump uh, and and Scott Taylor, and just seeing. Uh, what seemed to me people who are holding office without truly representing the people that they're supposed to be representing. So. And I think that's the story for a lot of people is that the greatest thing that came out of Trump was uh, women and minorities and young people stepping up and getting involved. Absolutely. Um, so your first big move in politics was starting up an indivisible chapter here in Hampton Roads, which has turned into one of the biggest chapters in Virginia and arguably one of the most active in the country. While many of us sat around not knowing what to do after Trump was elected, you got involved in the resistance from day one. How did you come across Indivisible, and how did you grow such a big chapter? Well, first let me let me make a bit of a, a diversion from the question. My, my very first kind of um, big interaction with politics on a personal level was as a national delegate for Bernie Sanders. So sitting on the floor there uh, at the Democratic National Convention, surrounded by all of these elected officials and just being an integral part of the process, I think started my interest. Uh, you know, being so closely connected to Bernie Sanders and he s so inspired me as um, the type of person who who sees politics as um, being a public servant? Uh, so that I, th I think that's got to that that had some that had a, that had a lot to do with. Yeah. Um, but so your question about uh, indivisible um, in bed uh, one day uh, watching Rachel Maddow, the lights were off. I had my computer on. And I'm watching her talk about Indivisible. And I think she had done a series. So I heard it the first time, maybe the day before, and didn't really pay attention. And then when I heard it, I just thought, wow. You know, writing to the, uh, the electors to make them change their mind about not casting their electoral yeah. vote wasn't going to do it. Um, but I thought to myself, this could be it. This could give us... Uh, a way to deal with what we were all seeing as a, a, a you know a horrible situation with this new president that didn't we could tell wasn't going to represent us. So you know I saw Indivisible and I thought this is it. Laying there literally in the bed in the dark, <laughs> I, took, I, I took my computer out and signed up and started a Facebook group and said this this could do it. This could That's be awesome. the way to push back. That's awesome. Um, and so, th this was apparent to me after the Women's March, um, most often, that conservatives often criticize this resistance and they say, it's pointless. They say, Trump's our president for the next three years, get over it. Um, and I'm sure you heard it around the Women's March too. They were like, why are these people marching? It's not going to do anything. He was elected. So what is your response to those kinds of people? Um, and what does resistance mean to you? What are you trying to get out of it? 
So for too long, many of us were either completely disconnected from the process or like me and were consumers. And we, I think many of us didn't really understand how everyday ordinary people like the grandmother, like the mom, like the college student can impact in a very real way simply by communicating with their legislators. And whether it's, you know, phone calling or showing up with a picket sign, we can say, no, you're going to listen to us. And this is what we want from you. And if enough of those voices engage and speak up, then they can't help but to listen. Yeah. And what they really care about is being reelected. And if they feel like there's a groundswell of attention and that they don't have the license to make decisions and and be unnoticed, you know, the lights have come on, um, then, oh, this is not a waste of time. Um, had it not been for the resistance, I can't imagine the things that this Congress would have pushed through. If you look at how many Republican members of Congress are now vacating their seats. It was like 30 retiring. or something crazy like that. So that's the power of yeah. the resistance. It is to say, we're not going to sit back here and just watch the train roll down the track. We're going to make our voices heard. We may not be able to stop the train, but we yeah. can sure as hell slow it down. Yeah, Love it. And I, I think the Affordable Care Act, I think, has been the best example of resistance so far. Not a single Republican would have questioned. It doesn't matter how bad the bill was. Not a single Republican would have questioned it if people didn't stand up and have their voices heard. Absolutely. And to me, I don't think resistance didn't exist before Trump. It's just it wasn't in a collective effort like it is right. now. Absolutely. So, um, so in progressive groups like the ones you are, you and I are in, we often say that the best form of resistance is running for office. <laughs> um, in 2017, Virginia had elections for governor and the General Assembly, and you stepped up to run for an extremely conservative district for the General Assembly. So what made you throw your hat into the ring, and what did you learn from that experience? Well, you know, it's about, um, I, I think, um, we've heard uh, leaders say you have to move from protest to power. And there were, you know, there was a time or a year ago where I had signs for you know, the, the border wall, the Muslim ban, the Affordable Care Act, depending on what I needed at the yeah. time. I had a cacophony of, of signs <laughs> in my car, um, but that doesn't that that does a lot, and it raises attention. But the truest form of resistance is saying, I'm going to step up, yeah. and I'm going to run, and we need to be challenging seats in every race, whether it's the, the, the most ruby red district, you know, uh, like the 81st, yeah. that, you know, hasn't been challenged. We need to step up, and we need to run, and every time a Democrat runs, you push the ball just a little bit further down the road. And so, yeah, I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. I'll run. That's awesome. And I think we saw all across Virginia, yeah, we had some seats like the 21st district here in Hampton Roads that was won by Hillary and held by a Republican uh, delegate. And we were like, okay, we can win those. But we also had a lot that, or at least a few that were won by Trump, but we said, 
we can win those too. Absolutely. And I think that really comes back to groups like Progressive House Virginia, like Tom Perriello, mm-hmm. um, who said every district is winnable until proven otherwise. Exactly. And, I mean, 81st District, we've neglected it for years. Nobody even tried. No Democrats, at least. No Democrat had ever challenged uh, the sitting delegate, uh, Barry Knight, since he had been into office. There was a Green candidate wow. who got, what, I think 30, 34%. 34% of the vote. Um, and so why not? Yeah. And so now we know that a, an inexperienced candidate can get 41% of the vote, then you know, there's not a big gap between 41 and 51, yeah. or, or 50% plus one. And, I mean, I think the national average right now for the, the way a district has swung is something like 13 points mm-hmm. from red right to the middle. Um, that means in 2019? That, that district could be blue. The district could be blue, and talk about a shot heard around the world. Yeah. And you've turned the picket signs in the back of your car into political yard signs. Exactly. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I yes. love it. Um, so it's my understanding that you aren't necessarily considering running for any offices offices in 2018, but you do plan on playing an active role in the 2018 elections. So in 2017, with Ralph Northam and Doug Jones's amazing victories, we saw the power of the anti-Trump movement and the so-called blue wave. Um this is actually one from my co-host, my roommate. Uh, do you think that that blue wave will be strong enough to lead Democrats to victory in 2018? And um, what do you think we need to do better in 2018 than we did in 2017? Oh, I absolutely think that we just saw the tip of the wave. Yeah. So I believe that Virginia can be, like, there's shades of blue. <laughs> you know, and I yeah. think 2017 gave us a little bit deeper of a, you know, we moved from purple to blue, but my vision is to have Virginia to be blue, blue, yeah, like the deepest blue. And so I believe 2017 was just the tip of the wave. I think when 28 was smart, so we stumbled into that. We worked hard, but we, most of us decided to run in February. So now if we start planning and finding people to run, for 2019, 2020. Yes. What we did in 2017 moved the ball forward for 2018. What organizing that we do in 2018. So it's about moving. It's not about the Hail Mary pass in the in the 90-yard touchdown. So I'm not a football player. <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> but, but it's about the down. It's about yeah. moving the ball. Just a little bit. Just a little bit until you get in the end zone and then you you get the home run? uh, Something like that. Touchdown, whatever. Um, So my next question was also actually going to be about 2018, but um, that's actually reminding me of another thing that you're involved with. Um, So one of my political heroes, Delegate Sam Rasool, um, has really been um, stirring things up in Richmond. One of his first days in the session, he introduced a huge election reform package um, to try and get more young people involved, to try and get corporate money out of politics. But uh, what really stands out to me about his career so far is this uh, organization, Democratic Promise. Um, and you've also gotten involved in Democratic Promise. Could you tell us a little bit about what that organization is seeking to do? So I see Democratic Promise as something more than a program. It's really a mindset. So... 
it's about engaging with voters on a real, genuine, authentic level to establish a connection and nothing else. So instead of waiting until, um, let's say, September or October to start phone banking and saying, can you donate? Can I put a sign in your yard? Will you come knock on doors? It's the, what can you do for me, uh, political model. So to me, democratic promise is just a paradigm shift to, you know, it's December after the election, and I'm calling you not to ask what you can do for me, but to ask, what can we do for you? Do you need assistance getting um, your VA benefits. Your VA benefits. Are there issues with getting um, social security? I mean, you know, what, what, anything that's at the state level um, that you may need help with, getting disability benefits for your your child, or um, so. So it's just a way, it's just a way of engaging with voters to say, what can we do to bring the machine, yeah, of the Democratic Party, to your doorstep. The day after the election. Right. To help meet your needs. To help your life be better. Yeah. I watched, um, one of my favorite campaigns I've ever witnessed was the Secretary of State in Kentucky, um, Allison Grimes. She challenged Mitch McConnell, Mm -hmm. and everyone told her it was never going to happen. And she said, if I can get the Democrats' true message across to rural voters in Kentucky and show them that our message helps them and our platform helps them, then I can win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see that out in rural Virginia because right across the border, they've got the Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. They see that the Democrats are fighting for those people, not just for the young people in metropolitan areas. Right. They are fighting to help those people. And so it, I think Democratic promise is great, not only because it's actually helping the constituency, but it's it's revealing to them that we want to be there for everyone. Right, you know, one of the things that disturbed me the most knocking on doors during the campaign was when people said, are you planning, when you when I asked, are you planning to vote in the election on November 7th? So many people said, oh no, I'm not voting. That doesn't impact my life. <laughs> that is an epic fail. Whether you are a Republican, independent, libertarian, or Democrat, if your constituents don't understand that your very purpose for sitting in that seat is to impact their lives. That's an epic fail. Yeah. So kind of turning back towards 2018, um, your congressional district and mine when I'm in Virginia Beach is the second congressional district of Virginia. And right now we have a Republican incumbent Mm -hmm. who isn't well-liked by the Democrats at all, Mm -hmm. but he also isn't well-liked by half the Republicans. Um, He has a very strong primary opponent and his district went to Ralph Northam by a considerable margin after being a ruby red district for a while. And so now, by my definition, it's a blue district. So how do you feel about this upcoming race? And do you think the eventual Democratic nominee could win? Well, I can answer that question by a statement that he just released. Well, the president um, planned to reverse... Uh, offshore drilling and and allowing, and of course, you know, by all accounts, that's just not a good idea for a number of different reasons. And Congressman Taylor had always been in agreement with Donald Trump in terms of offshore drilling. 
But now, after seeing this blue wave and seeing how Virginia is blue, for the first time, Scott Taylor's backed off of some of those hardcore red Donald Trump uh, you know, positions, and now he's not in favor of offshore drilling. And I think that it has nothing to do with the issue. It has nothing to do with the environment. It has everything to do with, I better be reasonable and listen to my constituents. And by a large majority, people in the second congressional district just understand that offshore drilling is not something that's in our best interest. And so do you think that the Democrats, whoever the nominee is, could mm -hmm. take the seat? I absolutely think so. I absolutely do. You know, and I think the Republicans think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we have some really good candidates. Um, and so far, it looks like we've got two breakout candidates with Karen Mallard and Elaine Luria. But Elaine Luria literally just announced, she just had her launch two days ago on Wednesday. Thursday, there was an attack ad from a, a, a conservative Republican PAC. Um, a robocall to every Democrat in the district. <laughs> every Democrat. And then today, there was another uh, uh, attack uh, ad that came out from a Republican conservative They're scared. PAC. They're scared, all right. Yeah. So that, that's a lot of, of Republican attention 48 hours after you've announced. So so I think if, if we can find good candidates across the country, mm -hmm. um, it's just about finding the right candidate. It's yeah. not about the polling. It is about finding a candidate who connects with the district. Absolutely. Um, and I think we have a few who connect with the district. Oh, we do. We, so. I think we've got a race now. We do. Yeah. So um, lastly is another question. I think they're going to kick us out of here pretty soon. So um, another question from Eddie. So the newest class of delegates was just sworn into the General Assembly a few days ago. Um, on the campaign trail, they all made huge promises, promises that I really liked hearing. Um, they had platforms of ideas. Um, they had platforms of visions. And so can you discuss the differences between what it takes to win elections and what it takes to implement those policies that they promised on the campaign trail? Well, as we have seen, you know, it, it, that's a very good question. It's one thing to say, when I'm elected, I'm going to build a wall. It's another thing to be able to do it. And that Mexico's going to pay for it. Right, and that Mexico, exactly, Mexico's going to pay for it. Um, but I think there's, um, there's a confluence of good policy and... Uh, good, the, the process of legislating. So for example, um, what's the, the gentleman uh, who won uh, Lee? Lee Carter. Lee Carter. Democratic Socialist. Democratic Socialist. Uh, a year ago when Bernie Sanders was running, that was like yeah. news. It was groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking. He, it, Lee, Lee Carter ran as a, an, an unashamed democratic socialist and ran on Medicare for all. Wow. Unapologetically. Now, um, the key is going to be uh, working with fellow Democrats to really help them to understand that this is a reasonable and financially responsible approach um, to help to providing health care yeah. to Virginians across the state uh, and so you have to have the kind of reputation of being knowledgeable and personable 
and being able to uh, make make those connections and help people understand because people have their their opinions but they are even legislators they are not always informed opinions um, so it's about so so I, I I think I think that's the challenge yeah and I, I think that comes back to the point of we have to have, uh, find candidates that connect to the district Danica Rome is a great example mm-hmm. Danica Rome is the first openly LGBT or transgender mm-hmm. um, woman in the state legislature mm-hmm. she didn't run on that though nope. she ran on a promise that mattered to her district fix route 28 now mm-hmm. and the first day at, day after she got elected I saw on her Twitter that she was meeting with um, someone on the transportation board Mm -hmm. because she wanted to turn that promise into something immediately. And she was already talking about how do I take this great slogan of fix route 28 now and actually fix route 28. Right. So, and I think that was a brilliant political move to do that. Unfortunately, I understand she, the the committee assignments came out today and she's not on the transportation committee. So, um, but that right there, running on on you know on fixing route 28 and then the day after the election starting to work on delivering yeah. that promise whether she succeeds or not doesn't really matter well it matters but what matters is that she said it she did it to the best of her ability now she's not on the transportation committee so her career is going to be pretty long so she's got time to get on it Absolutely. so that's really good to hear. So um, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, we haven't had, this is only our second episode, and we haven't had a guest on yet. Um, and so when I get back to school, I I'll w- sit down with Eddie, and we will work this in somehow. So I appreciate it, and uh, I am excited to 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 listen to your podcasts as they as they roll out. And I'm I appreciate you having me on. Wonderful. Thank you, Kim. And we are back. <laughs> um, so that was an amazing interview with Kim Tucker. Um, she, I enjoyed it. <laughs> so she got into resistance, like she said, right after um, Trump. Well, actually, she got involved with politics with Bernie Sanders. She was a Bernie Wait, Sanders I'm national I'm sorry, was delegate. I supposed to have listened to this interview? Eddie didn't listen to the interview, <laughs> but I'm going to make him listen to it. Fake news! <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, so she's been involved with the resistance since day one when all of us were just sitting around thinking, well, all of us Democrats, snowflakes, were sitting around thinking, well, crap, this guy was just elected to office. What do we do? Um, from day one, she said, I'm going to try and fight this. Um, and so I think it was really interesting to have her take on it. Um, and so, yeah. So, Eddie, like, from a Republican standpoint, um, I talked about this with Kim on the interview, but like when when the Women's March came around, when I got home, all I saw on Facebook was Republicans saying, "Oh, he's our president. Get over it. Like your march means nothing. Like what's is your viewpoint similar? Like resistance means nothing. Like does re- I don't know. I'm I, like I've always been very involved in those things. So like to me, they're important. But like, what is your view on it? Next election." is going to be an anger election. It's going, it's, it's all going to be driven by anger. It's going to be Trump's anger at the media for misrepresenting him the entire president, uh, his entire first term and the, uh, Democrats and the left as a whole are going to be driven by anger at the Trump administration and this, uh, resistance, uh, movement that we're seeing. So I think when the media is backing you the way it is, 
especially with something like the Women's March, which was covered nonstop the entire the entire time. Uh, I think that it can be a very powerful thing. Um, but I also would ask everyone who's uh, attending the march to really have uh, perhaps an idea of what you're actually protesting. And if you're just there because you're mad at Trump being president, ask yourself if that's really the precedent that you want uh, to set going forward in our political culture. Do we really want people to be that fired up and that uh, aggressive against a president? Obviously, like there's peaceful protests and there's violent protests, and it's important to draw a distinction between yeah. that. But the act of protesting itself, are we watering it down because we're just protesting everything that we don't happen to like in politics, which is normal. It's normal to disagree with, po with policies. It's normal to not like a, a particular candidate or a particular person in office. But do we really uh, want to set this as a precedent going forward? I don't know if Republicans or if Democrats necessarily set this precedent, though. Like, Tea Party groups were doing the same thing, and that's what I talked about at the beginning of the show. Indivisible is purposely using Tea Party tactics to show, like, that we can do it, too. That you guys did it to Obama for, eight, well, six years, because Tea Party's really got going into 2010. Um, so, like, we can do it right back to you guys. Um, and so, like, I don't think Democrats are setting this precedent. They're just showing that we have the right to do this, do this too. But, like, I agree. Like, where is the threshold for what do we show up to protest, what do we not show up to protest? Like, even though we... I, I might disagree with every single thing that comes out of the Trump White House, but do I need to gather on the streets and fight every single thing, or is that just a complete waste of my time? I don't know. Well, I think... Uh... If nothing else, I think this like protest culture and this protest sort of as a hobby now where people are going out every single weekend and protesting and creating groups uh, and different uh, various movements, I think uh, we're going to see how that manifests in the next election. If, yeah. if the left can pull this off and turn these movements into votes, I think we're talking a completely different thing than just these people are just mad now, they're angry. And when election day comes, they're not going to show up. Then they're going to complain about it for four more years. Exactly. <laughs> and um, and Kim and I talked about that. It's this idea of turning protests into power. Um, it's one thing to show up after work to a six o'clock protest, uh, like outside your congressman's office. But it's a or to make a call to your congressman or to write an angry post on Facebook. It's another thing to stand in line and actually cast that ballot. Um, and that's the part that's important to me. But what I'm hoping is that the resistance is keeping this in people's mind at all times so they show up to vote. Like, resistance is keeping Trump in check or and, like, showing or, like, almost keeping his support or his oppo opponents in the loop. Like, okay, excuse the brain aneurysm he just had there, but <laughs> I, I that out. cannot speak. <laughs> Um, no, we're going to leave it in. Um, <laughs> and like, so like, like I wouldn't know some of the things coming out of this Trump white house if it weren't for groups like indivisible and like other groups. Um, and like, I need to be reminded of these things to remind me why I need to show up for the special election for County commissioner in the middle of May that nobody ever shows up to because like, I need to show that my opinion matters. All right. Well, with that, I think uh, 
I think we can wrap it up. I think that was great. So, Lucas, go wonk yourself. Eddie Michelson, go wonk yourself. All right, this has been our second episode of Go Wonk Yourself. Um, tune in in a week or two for episode three.